Part 2, Chapter 3, Section 2 of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part 2, Chapter 3, Section 2. Marlowe paused for quite a long time. He seemed uncertain, as though he had advanced something beyond my grasp. Purposely, I made no sign. You understand? he asked. Perfectly, I said. You are the expert in the psychological wilderness. This is like one of those redskin stories where the noble savages carry off a girl and the honest backwoodsman with his incomparable knowledge follows the track and reads the signs of her fate in a footprint here, a broken twig there, a trinket dropped by the way. I've always liked such stories. Go on. Marlowe smiled indulgently at my jesting. It is not exactly a story for boys, he said. I go on, then. The sign, as you call it, was not very plentiful, but very much to the purpose. And when Mr. Powell heard, at a certain moment I felt bound to tell him, when he heard that I had known Mrs. Anthony before her marriage, that, to a certain extent, I was her confidant, for you can't deny that to a certain extent, well, let us say that I had a look in. A young girl, you know, is something like a temple. You pass by and wonder what mysterious rites are going on in there, what prayers, what visions. The privileged men, the lover, the husband, who are given the key of the sanctuary, do not always know how to use it. For myself, without claim, without merit, simply by chance, I had been allowed to look through the half-open door, and I had seen the saddest possible desecration, the withered brightness of youth, a spirit neither made cringing nor yet dulled, but as if bewildered in quivering hopelessness by gratuitous cruelty, self-confidence destroyed, and instead a resigned recklessness, a mournful callousness, and all this simple, almost naive, before the material and moral difficulties of the situation, the passive anguish of the luckless. I asked myself, wasn't that ill luck exhausted yet? Ill luck, which is like the hate of invisible powers interpreted, made sensible and injurious by the actions of men. Mr. Powell, as you may well imagine, had opened his eyes at my statement, but he was full of his recalled experiences on board the Ferndale, and the strangeness of being mixed up in what went on aboard simply because his name was also the name of a shipping master kept him in a state of wonder which made other coincidences, however unlikely, not so very surprising after all. This astonishing occurrence was so present to his mind that he always felt as though he were there under false pretenses, and this feeling was so uncomfortable that it nerved him to break through the awe-inspiring aloofness of his captain. He wanted to make a clean breast of it. I imagine that his youth stood in good stead to Mr. Powell. Oh, yes, youth is a power. Even Captain Anthony had to take some notice of it, as if it refreshed him to see something untouched, unscarred, unhardened by suffering. Or perhaps the very novelty of that face on board a ship where he had seen the same faces for years attracted his attention. Whether one day he dropped a word to his new second officer, or only looked at him, I don't know, but Mr. Powell seized the opportunity, whatever it was. The captain, who had started and stopped in his everlasting rapid walk, smoothed his brow very soon, heard him to the end, and then laughed a little. Ah, that's the story, and you felt you must put me right as to this. Yes, sir. 
"'It doesn't matter how you came on board,' said Anthony. And then, showing that perhaps he was not so utterly absent from his ship as Franklin supposed, "'That's all right. You seem to be getting on very well with everybody,' he said in his curt, hurried tone, as if talking hurt him, and his eyes already straying over the sea as usual. "'Yes, sir.' Powell tells me that, looking then at the strong face to which that haggard expression was returning, he had the impulse from some confused friendly feeling to add, "'I'm very happy on board here, sir.' The quickly returning glance, its steadiness, abashed Mr. Powell and made him even step back a little. The captain looked as though he had forgotten the meaning of the word. "'You? What?' "'Oh, yes. You, of course. Happy. Why not?' This was merely muttered, and next moment Anthony was off on his headlong tramp, his eyes turned to the sea away from his ship. A sailor, indeed, looks generally into the great distances, but in Captain Anthony's case there was, as Powell expressed it, something particular, something purposeful, like the avoidance of pain or temptation. It was very marked once one had become aware of it. Before, one felt only a pronounced strangeness, not that the captain, Powell was careful to explain, didn't see things as a shipmaster should. The proof of it was that on that very occasion he desired him suddenly, after a period of silent pacing, to have all the staysail sheets seized off, and he was going on with some other remarks on the subject of these staysails when Mrs. Anthony, followed by her father, emerged from the companion. She established herself in her chair to leeward of the skylight, as usual. Thereupon the captain cut short whatever he was going to say, and in a little while went down below. I asked Mr. Powell whether the captain and his wife never conversed on deck. He said no, or at any rate they never exchanged more than a couple of words. There was some constraint between them. For instance, on that very occasion when Mrs. Anthony came out, they did look at each other. The captain's eyes indeed followed her till she sat down, but he did not speak to her. He did not approach her and afterwards left the deck without turning his head her way after this first exchange of glances. I asked Mr. Powell what did he do then, the captain being out of the way. I went over and talked to Mrs. Anthony. I was thinking that it must be very dull for her. She seemed to be such a stranger to the ship. The father was there, of course. Always, said Powell. He was always there, sitting on the skylight as if he were keeping watch over her. And I think, he added, that he was worrying her. Not that she showed it in any way. Mrs. Anthony was always very quiet and always ready to look one straight in the face. You talk together a lot, I pursued my inquiries. She mostly let me talk to her, confessed Mr. Powell. I don't know that she was very much interested, but still, she let me. She never cut me short. All the sympathies of Mr. Powell were for Flora Anthony, nay, de Barrel. She was the only human being younger than himself on board that ship, since the Ferndale carried no boys, and was manned by a full crew of able seamen. Yes, their youth had created a sort of bond between them. Mr. Powell's open countenance must have appeared to her distinctly pleasing amongst the mature, roughed, crabbed, or even inimical faces she saw around her. With the warm generosity of his age, young Powell was on her side, as it were, even before he knew that there were sides to be taken on board that ship, and what this taking sides was about. There was a girl, a nice girl. He asked himself no questions. 
Florida Barrel was not so much younger in years than himself, but for some reason, perhaps by contrast with the accepted idea of a captain's wife, he could not regard her otherwise but as an extremely youthful creature. At the same time, apart from her exalted position, she exercised over him the supremacy a woman's earlier maturity gives her over a young man of her own age. As a matter of fact, we can see that, without ever having more than half an hour's consecutive conversation together and the distance duly preserved, these two were becoming friends, under the eye of the old man, I suppose. How he first got in touch with his captain's wife, Powell relates in this way. It was long before his memorable conversation with the mate and shortly after getting clear of the channel. It was gloomy weather, dead headwind, blowing quite half a gale. The Ferndale, under reduced sail, was stretching close-hauled across the track of the homeward-bound ships, just moving through the water and no more, since there was no object in pressing her and the weather looked threatening. About ten o'clock at night he was alone on the poop, in charge, keeping well aft by the weather rail and staring to windward, when amongst the white, breaking seas under the black sky he made out the lights of a ship. He watched them for some time. She was running dead before the wind, of course. She will pass jolly close, he said to himself, and then suddenly he felt a great mistrust of that approaching ship. She's heading straight for us, he thought. It was not his business to get out of the way, on the contrary, and his uneasiness grew by the recollection of the forty tons of dynamite in the body of the Ferndale, not the sort of cargo one thinks of with equanimity in connection with a threatened collision. He gazed at the two small lights in the dark immensity filled with the angry noise of the seas. They fascinated him, till their plainness to his sight gave him a conviction that there was danger there. He knew in his mind what to do in the emergency, but very properly he felt that he must call the captain out at once. He crossed the deck in one bound. By the immemorial custom and usage of the sea, the captain's room is on the starboard side. You would just as soon expect your captain to have his nose at the back of his head as to have his stateroom on the port side of the ship. Powell forgot all about the direction on that point given him by the chief. He flew over, as I said, stamped with his foot, and then putting his face to the cowl of the big ventilator, shouted down there, "'Please come on deck, sir!' in a voice which was not trembling or scared, but which we may call fairly expressive. There could not be a mistake as to the urgency of the call, but instead of the expected alert, "'All right!' and the sound of a rush down there, he heard only a faint exclamation, then silence. Think of his astonishment. He remained there, his ear to the cowl of the ventilator, his eyes fastened on those menacing sidelights dancing on the gusts of wind which swept the angry darkness of the sea. It was as though he had waited an hour, but it was something much less than a minute, before he fairly bellowed into the wide tube, "'Captain Anthony!' And agitated, "'What is it?' was what he heard down there in Mrs. Anthony's voice, light, rapid footsteps. "'Why didn't she try to wake him up?' "'I want the captain!' he shouted, then gave it up, making a dash at the companion where a blue light was kept, resolved to act for himself. On the way he glanced at the helmsman, whose face lighted up by the binnacle lamps was calm. He said rapidly to him, "'Stand by to spin that helm up at the first word.' The answer, "'Aye, aye, sir,' was delivered in a steady voice. Then Mr. Powell, after a shout for the watch on deck to lay all, ran to the ship's side and struck the blue light on the rail.' A sort of nasty little spitting of sparks was all that came. The light, perhaps affected by damp, had failed to ignite. The time of all these various acts must be counted in seconds. 
Powell confessed to me that at this failure he experienced a paralysis of thought, of voice, of limbs. The unexpectedness of this misfire positively overcame his faculties. It was the only thing for which his imagination was not prepared. It was knocked clean over. When it got up, it was with the suggestion that he must do something at once, or there would be a broadside smash accompanied by the explosion of dynamite, in which both ships would be blown up and every soul on board of them would vanish off the earth in an enormous flame and uproar. He saw the catastrophe happening, and at the same moment, before he could open his mouth or stir a limb to ward off the vision, a voice very near his ear, the measured voice of Captain Anthony, said, Wouldn't lie, eh? throw it down, jump for the flare-up. The spring of activity in Mr. Powell was released with great force. He jumped. The flare-up was kept inside the companion with a box of matches ready to hand. Almost before he knew he had moved, he was diving under the companion slide. He got hold of the can in the dark and tried to strike a light, but he had to press the flare-holder to his breast with one arm. His fingers were damp and stiff. His hands trembled a little. One match broke. Another went out. In its flame he saw the colourless face of Mrs. Anthony a little below him, standing on the cabin stairs. Her eyes, which were very close to his, he was in a crouching posture on the top step, seemed to burn darkly in the vanishing light. On deck the captain's voice was heard, sudden and unexpectedly sardonic. "'You'd better look sharp if you want to be in time.' "'Let me have the box,' said Mrs. Anthony in a hurried and familiar whisper, which sounded amused as if they had been a couple of children up to some lark behind a wall. He was glad of the offer, which seemed to him very natural and without ceremony. "'Here you are. Catch hold.' Their hands touched in the dark, and she took the box while he held the paraffin-soaked torch in its iron holder. He thought of warning her, look out for yourself, but before he had time to finish the sentence, the flare blazed up violently between them, and he saw her throw herself back with an arm across her face. Hello, he exclaimed, only he could not stop a moment to ask if she was hurt. He bolted out of the companion straight into his captain, who took the flare from him and held it high above his head. The fierce flame fluttered like a silk flag, throwing an angry swaying glare mingled with moving shadows over the poop, lighting up the concave surfaces of the sails, gleaming on the wet paint of the white rails, and young Powell turned his eyes to windward with a catch of his breath. The strange ship, a darker shape in the night, did not seem to be moving onwards but only to grow more distinct right abeam, staring at the Ferndale with one green and one red eye, which swayed and tossed as if they belonged to the restless head of some invisible monster ambushed in the night amongst the waves. A moment, long like eternity, elapsed, and suddenly the monster, which seemed to take to itself the shape of a mountain, shut its green eye without as much as a preparatory wink. Mr. Powell drew a free breath. "'All right now,' said Captain Anthony in a quiet undertone. He gave the blazing flare to Powell and walked aft to watch the passing of that menace of destruction, coming blindly with its party-coloured stare out of a blind night on the wings of a sweeping wind. Her very form could be distinguished now, black and elongated amongst the hissing patches of foam bursting along her path. As is always the case with a ship running before wind and sea, she did not seem to an onlooker to move very fast, but to be progressing indolently, in long, leisurely bounds and pauses in the midst of the overtaking waves. It was only when actually passing the stern with an easy hail of the Ferndale that her headlong speed became apparent to the eye. 
With a red light shut off and soaring like an immense shadow on the crest of a wave, she was lost to view in one great forward swing, melting into the lightless space. Close shave, said Captain Anthony in an indifferent voice, just raised enough to be heard in the wind. A blind lot on board that ship. Put out the flare now. Silently, Mr. Powell inverted the holder, smothering the flame in the can, bringing about by the mere turn of his wrist the fall of darkness upon the poop. And at the same time vanished out of his mind's eye the vision of another flame, enormous and fierce, shooting violently from a white-churned patch of the sea, lighting up the very clouds and carrying upwards in its volcanic rush flying spars, corpses, the fragments of two destroyed ships. It vanished, and there was an immense relief. He told me he did not know how scared he had been, not generally, but of that very thing his imagination had conjured till it was all over. He measured it, for fear is a great tension, by the feeling of slack weariness which came over him all at once. He walked to the companion, and, stooping low to put the flare in its usual place, saw in the darkness the motionless pale oval of Mrs. Anthony's face. She whispered quietly, Is anything going to happen? What is it? It's all over now, he whispered back. He remained bent low, his head inside the cover, staring at that white, ghostly oval. He wondered she had not rushed out on deck. She had remained quietly there. This was pluck, wonderful self-restraint. And it was not stupidity on her part. She knew there was imminent danger and probably had some notion of its nature. You stayed here waiting for what would come, he murmured admiringly. Wasn't that the best thing to do, she asked. He didn't know, perhaps. He confessed he could not have done it, not he. His flesh and blood could not have stood it. He would have felt he must see what was coming. Then he remembered that the flare might have scorched her face and expressed his concern. A bit, nothing to hurt. Smell the singed hair. There was a sort of gaiety in her tone. She might have been frightened, but she certainly was not overcome and suffered from no reaction. This confirmed and augmented, if possible, Mr. Powell's good opinion of her as a jolly girl, though it seemed to him positively monstrous to refer in such terms to one's captain's wife. But she doesn't look it, he thought in extenuation, and was going to say something more to her about the lighting of that flare when another voice was heard in the companion saying some indistinct words. Its tone was contemptuous. It came from below, from the bottom of the stairs. It was a voice in the cabin. And the only other voice which could be heard in the main cabin at this time of the evening was the voice of Mrs. Anthony's father. The indistinct white oval sank from Mr. Powell's sight so swiftly as to take him by surprise. For a moment he hung at the opening of the companion, and now that her slight form was no longer obstructing the narrow and winding staircase, the voices came up louder, but the words were still indistinct. The old gentleman was excited about something, and Mrs. Anthony was managing him, as Powell expressed it. They moved away from the bottom of the stairs, and Powell went away from the companion. Yet he fancied he had heard the words, Lost to me, before he withdrew his head. They had been uttered by Mr. Smith. Captain Anthony had not moved away from the taffrail. He remained in the very position he took up to watch the other ship go by rolling and swinging, all shadowy in the uproar of the following seas. He stirred not, and Powell, keeping nearby, did not dare speak to him. So enigmatical in its contemplation of the night did his figure appear to his young eyes. 
indistinct, and in its immobility staring into gloom, the prey of some incomprehensible grief, longing or regret. Why is it that the stillness of a human being is often so impressive, so suggestive of evil, as if our proper fate were a ceaseless agitation? The stillness of Captain Anthony became almost intolerable to his second officer. Mr. Powell, loitering about the skylight, wanted his captain off the deck now. Why doesn't he go below? he asked himself impatiently. He ventured a cough. Whether the effect of the cough or not, Captain Anthony spoke. He did not move the least bit. With his back remaining turned to the whole length of the ship, he asked Mr. Powell with some brusqueness if the chief mate had neglected to instruct him that the captain was to be found on the port side. Yes, sir, said Mr. Powell, approaching his back. The mate told me to stamp on the port side when I wanted you, but I didn't remember at the moment. You should remember, the captain uttered with an effort. Then added, mumbling, I don't want Mrs. Anthony frightened, don't you see? She wasn't this time, Powell said innocently. She lighted the flare up for me, sir. This time, Captain Anthony exclaimed and turned round. Mrs. Anthony lighted the flare? Mrs. Anthony? Powell explained that she was in the companion all the time. All the time, repeated the captain. It seemed queer to Powell that instead of going himself to sea, the captain should ask him, Is she there now? Powell said that she had gone below after the ship had passed clear of the Ferndale. Captain Anthony made a movement towards the companion himself when Powell added the information, Mr. Smith called to Mrs. Anthony from the saloon, sir. I believe they are talking there now. He was surprised to see the captain give up the idea of going below after all. He began to walk the poop instead, regardless of the cold, of the damp wind and of the sprays. And yet he had nothing on but his sleeping suit and slippers. Powell, placing himself on the break of the poop, kept a lookout. When, after some time, he turned his head to steal a glance at his eccentric captain, he could not see his active and shadowy figure swinging to and fro. The second mate of the Ferndale walked aft, peering about, and addressed the seaman who steered. "'Captain, gone below!' "'Yes, sir,' said the fellow, who, with a quid of tobacco bulging out of his left cheek, kept his eyes on the compass card. "'This minute he laughed.' "'Laughed?' repeated Powell incredulously. "'Do you mean the captain did? You must be mistaken. What would he want to laugh for?' "'Don't know, sir.' The elderly sailor displayed a profound indifference towards human emotion. However, after a longish pause, he conceded a few words more to the second officer's weakness— Yes, he was walking the deck as usual, when suddenly he heard a little laugh and made for the companion, thought of something funny all at once. Something funny? That Mr. Powell could not believe. He did not ask himself why at the time. Funny thoughts come to men, though, in all sorts of situations. They come to all sorts of men. Nevertheless, Mr. Powell was shocked to learn that Captain Anthony had laughed without visible cause on a certain night. The impression, for some reason, was disagreeable, and it was then, while finishing his watch, with the chilly gusts of wind sweeping at him out of the darkness where the short sea of the surroundings growled spitefully all round the ship, that it occurred to his unsophisticated mind that perhaps things are not what they are confidently expected to be, that it was possible that Captain Anthony was not a happy man. In so far, you will perceive he was, to a certain extent, prepared for the apoplectic and sensitive Franklin's lamentations about his captain. And though he treated them with a contempt which was in a great measure sincere, 
Yet he admitted to me that deep down within him an inexplicable and uneasy suspicion that all was not well in that cabin, so unusually cut off from the rest of the ship, came into being and grew against his will. End of part two, chapter three, section two.